Today we wrap up our look at uh, the most interesting man in the world, Abraham. And uh, I don't know if my wife was just being really nice to me last night or if she's honest. I, th- I think she's honest. Uh, she said she was really bummed to see this series come to an end. Um, I'm not feeling that way. Uh, <laughs> I've enjoyed it. I'm, it's been a good series, but uh, there's been some difficult sermons in there, and this is definitely not an easy one. Um, this is the last uh, story that we are told in the book of Genesis about Father Abraham. Um, and it is, uh, to our modern ears, a very disturbing story. And uh, so I'm going to do my best to help you understand this story, give you a little bit of historical uh, context. You're going to have to work to stay with me today. Um, But you know, one thing I've learned is that if it's not worth working hard at it, it's not worth doing. So uh, uh, many times I think folks enjoy kind of easy listening sermons. Don't worry, we'll get some of those in here every once in a while because the preacher needs them. Uh, but uh, there are times where we need to wrestle with the Scriptures, and not just with the Scriptures, with God. If you remember, the name Israel means wrestles with God. So uh, you and I, the church, have been grafted into Israel, so now we're all wrestlers with God. It's F G, whatever it is now. Um, and uh, we are all wrestlers. Uh, would you join me in a word of prayer before this morning's message? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One question for you today and... Uh, It's not a fun question. It's not one that we necessarily uh, want to admit to, but it's a question that we all need to grapple with. We all need to be honest with about with ourselves and with God. In fact, God already knows it, so it makes no sense to not be honest with him about it. But lots of the time we are dishonest with ourselves with the answer to this question. Where do you find your value? Where do you find your security? Where do you find your safety? Your worth? All these are questions that are basically getting at the the base question. What is your foundation in life? We all answer this in different ways. Humanity has answered it in different ways throughout the course of history. And the three biggies that humanity keeps coming back to and answering this question with are power, money, wealth, sex, intimacy. Those are, those are the big three that if you watch television at all, you know those are the core foundational values of where you find value, meaning, security. And most people in our culture, and even most Christians in our culture, functionally, functionally found, find their value in one of those things. 
They find it in their health. They find it in wealth. They find it in beauty. They find it in success. They find it in a career. We all do this because, guys, if we're honest, when we get together, we ask this question at some level. What do you do for a living? And all of us want to have a good answer to that. All men want to have a good answer to that. My answer is not very good. It's a good answer to stop conversation. It's a good answer to get people to quit talking to me most of the time. It's a good answer for people to go, oh, brother, why am I next to this person? And pastors do it too. We do it to each other. We ask usually, how many are you running? Kind of like how many head of cattle you got, you know? How many are you running? How many folks are coming to your church? How big is your church? Because many of us, we value and we place our foundational security and self-worth on what we do, what we're able to accomplish, our successes. We tend to minimize our failures. And we feel better about ourselves when we are successful, when we are wealthy, when we are powerful, when we look good. Yesterday, we were in Kansas City, and Dave was wearing a Bronco hoodie. And I told him several times, you are in enemy territory. This is not a good thing, especially the same week we beat them. And we went into a Chick-fil-A for lunch, and the man at the counter said, may I, you know, Chick-fil-A, they're Christians, a lot of folks there, they're nice people. I don't know if they're all Christians, but this guy was a good guy. He's probably a brother in Jesus, but he did not like that Dave was wearing Broncos. And he says, may I help you? And then he saw Dave, he's like, I'll serve all of you, but the Bronco fan. <laughs> and he asked, are you guys from Denver? And I said, well, we're I grew up in Denver, but we're from a small town, Ray, Colorado. And he says, well, I'm a lifelong Kansas City, and I grew up here. And, and in spite of all that, can I get you a sandwich? <laughs> and in our culture, many of us, sometimes I felt really good about myself and my son wearing his Bronco gear. And if we had lost that game, Dave, hide that. <laughs> you know, but when you win, you're like, ah, we're better than you. And it's easy to get self-worth and value from even an affiliation with a winning team. What are you trusting in? What is your foundation in life? And I want you to be honest. Don't, don't, well, the answer is Jesus because we're in church. What is it really? And in fact, let me give you a working definition of God. You see, I think a working definition of God is what is that non-negotiable thing in your life? You must have this to be happy. You must have this to, to be successful. You must have this to be comfortable. You must have this for security. Like I've asked many times, what, which is worse news for you if tomorrow you wake up and you find out your money is all gone or God doesn't exist? Which is worse news? What is the non-negotiable in your life? Another way to get to that question is many times people will come up and they ask me, hey, if I become a Christian, am I going to have to stop doing this or doing that? If I become a Christian, is he going to ask me to do this or do that? And honestly, when you read the story of Abraham, you see a God who says, go to the place I'll show you. Go to where I show you. And that's a frustrating answer. 
And we find that there's a God who wants us to follow him and obey him no matter what he might ask of us. And for many of us, we think, well, I'll follow this God as long as he doesn't ask me to give this up or stop doing this or do this thing or not do that. And if you have any non-negotiables with God, that's your God. Little G. Becoming a big G in your life. What is the non-negotiable in your life? That's your foundation. You see, when people say I'm not a religious person, uh, when people say I'm an atheist, I kind of laugh. I think, you know, all of us worship something. All of us are religious. It's just in us. It's how we function. It's how we're built. All of us have an ultimate thing. And we strive and we work and we put all this blood and sweat and tears into this thing, this non-negotiable. And if it's stripped away from you, your life becomes meaningless. You are more insecure. You lack something. And this story, the story that we'll look at today is Abraham when he's asked to sacrifice Isaac. It's a yucky story, at least to our modern ears. And I hope to help you understand it in a little way, especially in its historical context and in light of the biblical teaching. But many times when we follow God, he's going to come to us and ask us to sacrifice something. He's going to come to you and he's going to ask you to give up something. And it's going to be something that is precious. It might even be something he promised to you. I think when he asks that, he's trying to get at the core of what is God in your life? Who is God in your life? That's what this passage gets to. We've got some work to do to get there. So Isaac's been born. (laughs) We've been waiting weeks for that to happen, haven't we? And that's about all I'm going to give it is Isaac was born. Boom, done. We've been waiting for weeks and it's felt like a long time ever since I've said it. It hasn't even been nine months for us. For Abraham, it was 25 years from the time he first heard, I'm going to make you into a great nation. You're going to have a kid. When he was 75 years old, Isaac is born when he's 100. (laughs) Some of you are only 25. And you're thinking, when is God going to get on with it? Some of you are mid-40s and you're thinking, when is God going to get on with it? Some of you are in your mid-70s and you're thinking, when is God going to get on with it? When I see this story, I see a God who is patient and faithful. So we read in Genesis 21, we won't going to read that, but we read that Isaac is finally born. And the weird thing about that story is there's very little fanfare. It's just like, hey, and Isaac was born and boom, 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 and let's move on. It's like, what? We have been building up for this. Isn't there a big party? I mean, this doesn't happen every time in the geriatric ward of the hospital, you know, that a 90-year-old woman gives birth to a, a child. Even in the Old Testament, it didn't happen very often. Isaac's born. Years go by. Sarah asks for Ishmael to be sent off to leave because Ishmael is laughing at Isaac one day. And Sarah doesn't like that. Moms, do you like it when your kid's laughed at by somebody? 
Yes? Okay, I'll start laughing at your kids more often. We'll put that to the test. Moms typically don't like that. They don't like it when their kids are picked on. And Sarah didn't like that Ishmael was picking on Isaac. So she asked for Hagar and Ishmael to be sent away. And Abraham, he's got this 13-year-old Ishmael in his hands, and he thinks, I don't want to send this kid away. This is my firstborn by Hagar. And God comes and says, Abraham, do it, Sarah says. Send him off. I don't think it was an easy scene. I don't think it was easy for them. And they send Ishmael and Hagar off. And now Abraham is left with Isaac and Sarah. In some ways, he's already had to let go of one of his promised children. In some ways, he's already had to let go of of something or someone that he could have put a lot of value and a lot of security and a lot of his own self-worth into his son Ishmael. And God's about to up the ante. We read in Genesis 22, verse 1, Sometime later, don't you love how the Bible is so specific sometimes? Sometime later, God tested Abraham. Don't you love how the Bible is so specific? God tested Abraham. Abraham, let me just let me just uh, share with you. Those are some of the scariest, most difficult words you might ever experience in life. God tested you. But let me assure you, listen close. If you fail to listen to the sermon today, you will miss out on something. This is so important. If you live on planet Earth. How many of you do? Anybody? And if you have faith in God, anybody? If you are seeking to be faithful to him, he will test you. I am dead serious about this. Do you know how I know this? Because it's in the Bible. It's right there. God will test you. Now, there's a difference here. I don't want you to hear me wrong. He will not tempt you. James tells us, the epistle of James says, God does not tempt anyone. You are tempted by your own evil desires and you are tempted by the tempter, the adversary of God, Satan. But he will test you. And he wants to see, uh, are you really what you say you are? And he wants to reveal it to you. And it's really weird because when you read this story, you also find he wants to reveal it to himself. He tests you and he will test each of us. And if you've lived long enough, you have, I'm sure, walked this path. Abraham, he tested Abraham. He said to him, God said to him, Abraham, here I am. He replied, (laughs) that's funny. Then God said, take your son your only son, whom you love, Isaac. <laughs> it's pretty, pretty clear who it is, right? And it's clear that God is trying to, to unearth the relationship and the narrator is trying to help us see that this is Isaac, the beloved son of Abraham. He's trying to help us. You know, when I was not a parent, I would read this one way. Since I become a parent, I read this a different way. And he's trying to help me and the guys who maybe don't have the connection with their kids that we should sometimes to help us read and go, oh, he really loves this kid. 
Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. And our modern ears go, what? Huh? Terrible. Again, God is not very specific. He says, go to where I will show you. And we've watched over and over again how Abraham sometimes is really faithful and sometimes not so faithful. And now we know this is a test because the narrator told us at the beginning, this is a test. God is testing Abraham. How is Abraham going to do in this test? And we read early the next morning. See that early. He didn't wait around like Lot and Sodom early the next morning. Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. And on the third day, whoa, time's traveling fast here, isn't it? On the third day, boom, 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 boom. On the third day, that's important. You've got to get a feel for the, the space and the spacing that the Arthur writes here. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servant, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham's delusional. He said we, right? That or he's faithful. Hebrews 11 tells us that this is... Faith, and perhaps that's what he's showing here, that he has faith that somehow he and Isaac will return. But we don't know yet. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son, Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. Do you see the tenderness? He, he keeps the fire and the knife away from the boy. He puts the boy on the wood. And as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and he said to his father, Abraham. All of a sudden, the narrator slows it down. It's been three days and now we're going to get the one and only discussion in Scripture between Abraham and Isaac. The only time it's recorded them talking to each other. Father? Yes, my son? Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? This kid's not stupid. Uh, how's this going to go down, Dad? And you can just feel the tension. And it's interesting to note that this is a long three-day journey. This isn't a just get it over with quickly. This isn't a just, I'm just going to, God told me, so I'm just going to, okay, let's muster up the energy and the strength and let's just make this happen. This is three long, arduous, gut-wrenching, horrible pleading with God day in, day out, probably. Doesn't tell us. How would you feel? What's driving Abraham up this mountain? What keeps him going? How is he able to do this? Is it just because he's just so faithful and so obedient? Why is he able to do this? We're about to see. 
Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. You know, the word that he uses for provide in Hebrew is the word to see. It's like when we say to our, uh, our wife or our kids, I'll see to it. I'll see that it gets done. And that's how Abraham, that's the word he uses here. God will see to it. God will see that it is done. You know what he's really saying? I don't see. I don't see, but God sees. I don't see how this is going to be done, but God will see to it that it's done. You see? God will see to it that it's done. This is what's driving Abraham up the mountain. This is what's compelling him to move on is that he has faith that somehow, even though it feels like God is killing him, that God will see to it. You see, this is the amazing call of God. And many of you have experienced this in your own life. But when you start to follow God and you go to where he says, hey, I'll show you later where you're going. I just want you to follow me. Notice how Jesus picks up a lot of the same themes. Instead of telling us where we're going, he just comes along and says, hey, follow me. And if you're like me, like most Americans, you think, uh, where? That's what my kids ask. Where? And then we follow up that quickly when mom and dad don't answer. We just get in the car and we start driving. And the kids start saying, are we there yet? And, and this is the dialogue we have with Jesus. This is the dialogue we have with God, isn't it? <laughs> I, I've been with elderly people. My grandmother's one of them. And she often asks, are we there yet? I'm in my mid-90s. Why am I still here? Are we there yet? And you know what the answer is for her? No. If you're still alive, you ain't done. If you ain't dead, you ain't done. And perhaps it's a test. And God is testing her. We ask, are we there yet? We ask where? And Jesus and God the Father just say, follow me. And when we hear those words... And we begin to follow. Aren't there times that you just wonder, <laughs> really? This mountain? This direction? You really want me to do this? And there are times it feels like God is killing us. What he's asking us to do is killing us. Reminds me, Elizabeth Elliot, she was went to... Uh, Sheep ranch farm. What do you call those? I don't know. A sheepy place and a place with sheep. I'm a city boy. I don't know. A ranch. It's a sheep ranch. I don't know. Uh, A sheepy area. We didn't have those in Littleton. We had parks and open space. So she went to a sheep ranch and she saw the shepherd taking one of the sheep all its wool and, you know, get kind of burly looking and goofy looking. And this shepherd took the sheep and put it in a vat of antiseptic. And the, the shepherd took his hand with much strength, 
push the sheep's head down under the antiseptic, the liquid, and the vat. The sheep is, <laughs> what would you do? <laughs> Let me up. You can't really explain this to a sheep, right? Hey, okay, it's going to be all right. I'm going to stick your head under and you're going to be fine. This is for your own good. I mean, just you guys who've worked with cattle and stuff, you know. I mean, there's just times. The sheep gets its head up and the shepherd just pushes it back down. And it's for the sheep's own good because if he doesn't do this, if the the sheep doesn't get submersed totally in the antiseptic, then there's a possibility that it will get a parasite. There's something that will eat away at it, that will destroy it, that will kill it. And she wondered, Elizabeth Elliot, who lost her husband as a missionary, who was killed by the people he was trying to lead to Christ, and she thought, what is it like as a sheep to feel like a shepherd is killing you? And then she said, I know. I know what that feels like. And you see, if you're on this journey long enough following Christ to where he's going to show you, there are going to be times that it feels like the shepherd is killing you. That's at least one of the things we can learn from this story. There are times for our own good, it'll feel like the shepherd is killing us. God himself will see to it that the lamb for the burnt offering is provided. And the two of them went on up together. And when they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and he arranged the wood on it. And he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Have you noticed how many times the word wood has been in this story? There's a reason. And he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. <laughs> Same response. Here I am. Wish my kids would say that sometimes. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Isn't that a weird story? Doesn't God know everything? He didn't seem to know this. He didn't seem to know this because if you notice how it's told, it doesn't say, now you know that I know what I know, Abraham. God himself says, I have, I have gained knowledge. And this verse keeps me from being a good Calvinist in some ways. Somehow this action impresses God in such a way that God learns something about Abraham that he did not know before. And I don't know how that works. Don't know how to explain that theologically. Of course, you're welcome to try. We're only talking about God here. But somehow God learns something from this exchange that Abraham fears him. It's fascinating because this story is just unnerving to us. It's irritating to us. And it's so irritating that uh, the traditional understanding of this passage, to me, does not work. 
the traditional understanding is have faith, obey God, no matter how crazy or nutty the thing he asks you to do. So just go do it. Be obedient, no matter what, no matter what God asks you. But there's a problem with that traditional understanding of this text. And Soren Kierkegaard, back in the 1800s, wrote about this text. And he wrote a little booklet called Fear and Trembling. And in that booklet, he helped us understand how that traditional understanding of the text just doesn't work. In that little booklet, he wrote about a scenario of a preacher talking to a congregation about this text and saying the traditional understanding. God said, Abraham, kill your son. Go, all of you. And no matter how nutty or crazy God asks you to do something, be sure to do it. During that week, Kierkegaard imagines a man who heard that sermon and he goes home and he kills his son. And then the next Sunday... The community gathers and the preacher is condemning the man and saying, you, what horrible thing has happened in our community this week? What a terrible thing. And Kierkegaard asks the question, if that man is condemned, why not Abraham? Why isn't Abraham condemned, at least for the thing he's trying to do? And Kierkegaard asked some great questions of this text. And in the last 15 to 20 years, there has been uh, just the scholarship around this text has blown up. And it's so helpful. And modern day scholarship comes along and it says, what we need to do is we need to put this passage into its historical context. And this is where you need to work hard. You see, to understand this passage. There are a couple of things you need to understand or understand. One is God did not ask Abraham to murder his son, Isaac. If he asked him to murder him, why didn't he just go into the tent with a knife and get it over with? What he asked him to do is to sacrifice his son, Isaac. That's why there's wood involved. That's why there's a fire involved. That's why there's an altar involved. That's why there's a knife. That's why there's a three day journey to the mountains of Moria. This isn't a murder. This is a sacrifice. In fact, if God had come to Abraham and said, I want you to kill Sarah, he would have said, I'm hallucinating. Now, why would he have said that? Because there is this iron law of the primogenerator. Huh? What? Primo what? The primogenerator in the Old Testament, in the ancient world. And this law says that we are a family unit. We do not see each other as individuals like our modern day society sees. We see ourselves as a family. And when there is a firstborn, all of the inheritance goes to the firstborn. How many have firstborns? Anybody? How many of you would like this to still be the laws? And the law of the primogenerator, the law of the firstborn would say that all of the family's inheritance goes to the firstborn. And the reason it all goes to the firstborn is because in the ancient world, if you start dividing it up amongst two or three or most of the time, 12, 15, 20 folks, there's very little left over for the family to survive off of. The land is piddled away. And over the course of generations, there's very little left. Because wealth was land back then. 
And so all of the land went to the firstborn. And with that came responsibilities for the firstborn. This is the part where the firstborns go, eh, I don't like this part of the law so much. Where the firstborn was responsible to take care of the family off of the family's wealth. It passed down to the firstborn and it passed down to the firstborn and it passed down to the firstborn. And it's interesting because I don't think necessarily God endorses this system. In fact, when you look throughout Genesis, scholars keep pointing out that God keeps, to, keeps getting this wrong. Instead of working with Cain, he works with Abel. Instead of working with Esau, he works with Jacob. Instead of working with Ishmael, he works with Isaac. Instead of working with the firstborn, he keeps subverting this and picking the second. I think there's something to that, that God's not necessarily saying, ah, I'm in league with this and I get this and this is the way it should be. But... He does take this understanding of the world and he builds a symbolic spiritual structure upon it. And that's why throughout the Old Testament you read, the firstborn is forfeit. The first fruits of your crop is mine. The firstborn of every womb, animal, human, is mine unless it's redeemed. You must pay a debt to me for it. You must pay me to keep that firstborn. And if you do not pay me, it is mine. And Abraham understood this. You see what's going on in this text. When God comes to him and tests him and says, give me your one and only son, the one you love, Isaac. Give him to me as a sacrifice. What God is doing is he's calling the debt. Because Abraham's family has a sin problem. It has a debt problem. And God is calling the debt. And all of a sudden, Abraham has a huge problem because the God of promise is also a just God. And the God of promise is saying, the thing I promised you, I want it back. That's how we're going to square this up. And there's a huge problem as Abraham is making his way in the mountains of Moriah. And Abraham is wrestling in his mind. I know I'm sinful. I know I'm selfish. And I know that God is just. Because if God is not just, there is no hope in this world. There is nothing that will make things right. There is no one that will hold anybody accountable for any behavior they do. And yet, this is the God of promise. This is the God who said, I will make you a great nation. I will make your, your ancestors as great as the stars in the heavens. Abraham is a great problem. How does a just God be a gracious God? This passage is alluded to several times in the New Testament, where we really learn the horror of this story. See, the horror of the story is not that Abraham has been asked to sacrifice his firstborn. The horror of the story is that God has asked for every firstborn from every family ever. How many of you firstborns like this part of the story? And this was not the only time. If you remember Passover... What was the plague, the final plague? It was the plague of the firstborn. 
And not that there was going to be lots of firstborns wandering on the earth, but that God was going to kill all the firstborns. And it's interesting, when you read that story, it wasn't just the firstborn of the Egyptians that he was going to kill. It was the firstborn of all who were residing in Egypt. And the way that the Israelites avoided that from happening in their family was they took a lamb and they killed it. And they took blood with a hyssop branch and they put it in the blood of the lamb and they put it on the doorposts of their home. So that when the angel of death came looking for the firstborn to kill and he saw the blood of the lamb on that door, he said, this is paid for. And he went on to the next house. And it is reiterated again and again and over and over again. And God builds an entire spiritual symbolic system upon the law of the primogenerator. And it is realized in the lamb. The Lamb of Christ. You see, what helped Abraham get up that hill that day? And it's fascinating. In First Chronicles, we learn that the mountains of Moriah are the same mountains that Israel, uh, that Jerusalem is on. And we find that there was a perfect father who led his one and only son, the one he loved, Yeshua, Jesus. And he led him up a mountain in Jerusalem called Calvary. And he led him there and he put that firstborn on the wood. And that firstborn, that firstborn paid the debt of all who would later follow him. All who would place their faith in this firstborn. All who would trust this firstborn. All who would say, you know what? All of life is going to strip away all of my foundations. Life is by bit and bit going to take away from me everything that I've ever put. My security, my hope, my your wealth your health, your beauty, it will all pass away. And there's nothing you can do about it. It's all fading away bit by bit. And you might as well just bring it as an offering. Bring it as an offering. And ask God to be your rock, your foundation, your place of strength. Your secure place, your place of hope. You see, that's how God is both a God of justice and a gracious God. He meted out the punishment for our sins. He meted out the punishment for all of the unrighteousness and all of the sin in the world on his son, on the wood, on the mountains of Moria. And there was a perfect lamb. And this is just a, a picture. It's a type. It's a type of Christ. It was to help us so that Abraham, if he ever was to find himself at the foot of the cross on Calvary, he was able to look and go, oh, now I know how much you love me. You see, what God said to Abraham, now I know how much you fear me. But for us, when we go to the cross on Calvary, we say, now I know 
how much you love me. You would give up your son for me and my debt. And this is the heart of the gospel. And we get this wrong all the time. And do you see? This is not the mount where obedience is done. This is not the mount of trying harder. This is the mount where it says, on the mountain, the Lord will provide. It's not the mountain of, I will try harder. It's not the mountain of, I will get my act together. It's not the mountain of, I will trust harder. It's not the mountain of, I can do this. I must do this. I will get it done. It is the mountain of, the Lord will see to it. Don't be a stupid American and think it's about you getting the job done. Don't think it's about you seeing to it. It is about the Lord seeing to it. It is the only way that justice can be met and that graciousness can be found. It is in the person of Christ on the mountains of Moria. What is your hope and foundation in? Be ready for a test. God will test it. He will test what truly is the foundation of your life. And the only way you can prepare and be ready and instead of being tossed around by the circumstances of life is to place your feet on the rock of God. We're going to close our time together by singing a song. And really at the heart of this song, it's open up the sky. And really one of the questions that this, this text unearths for us is do we want God's promises or do we want God? What's going to be our foundation? His promises, His blessings, His provision, or He Himself?